You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Yesterday we were talking about uh, the suffering that Jesus took on at Christmas time, recognizing that the Christmas story isn't always quite uh, the happy story that we make it out to be. For we understand that in order for Jesus to become man, there was a lot of difficulties that he had to face. And yesterday we talked about one of those difficulties being the fact that he had to be made a refugee. Today we're just going to take a brief moment to talk about one of the other difficulties that he had to face. And I think we'll find that just as uh, the difficulties Jesus had to face in becoming a refugee was feeding into how we talk about things today, so we find that uh, this other topic going on in the Christmas story feeds into how we think and act today as well. Uh, So Matthew 2, 16 through 18 is what we're going to look at. But before we get to that, a few Bible stories we're going to just jaunt back through throughout the Bible, starting with Joseph. Now, I'm not talking about Joseph in the New Testament. I'm talking about Joseph in the Old Testament. If you know the story of Joseph, he was a Hebrew. He was a part of God's people. But he ended up uh, being turned into a slave for the Egyptians. But God did this miraculous thing in which uh, he gave Joseph the ability to interpret dreams and People who were in charge of nations at the time really valued people who could interpret dreams because they knew that if God could interpret a dream to uh, a king of an area, then the king could do as God wished and kind of have a heads up. So this first picture up in the upper left-hand corner is Joseph interpreting some dreams for Pharaoh. And uh, Joseph, because he had the ability to interpret dreams, he moved from being a slave in Egypt, to actually kind of taking on a big role in politics in Egypt. And then his family got to find him there in Egypt, and they all moved into Egypt together. So the Hebrews are all living in Egypt together, and the Hebrews are having kids like rabbits. Okay? So they start having tons and tons and tons of kids. Time goes on. And uh, by the time we get to the book of Exodus, we see that uh, the Hebrews are quite a prevalent people group in Egypt. This actually makes a a new king quite nervous. So a new king takes on the the role of king in Egypt, and he sees that there's a lot of people here in Egypt who are not Egyptians anymore. And it makes him a little nervous. What if there's an uprising or something? So he decides that he's just going to oppress these Hebrews. He does not remember Joseph. He doesn't know the story about the guy who interpreted dreams. All he knows is that right now there's a bunch of Hebrews in his land and it makes him nervous. So what he does is he turns them into slaves. That's one of the ways in which he oppresses him. It's interesting. Joseph was in charge of storehouses, making sure that they stored up enough food when famine came. But by the time we get to Exodus, the king turns all the Hebrews into the people who have to build the storehouses as free labor for them. So you see the Hebrews are oppressed by becoming slaves. And you see that the Hebrews are oppressed in another way as well. It's that when they have uh, children, speaking of children, Jericho, did you need something? My daughter, everybody. Thank you. 
I love you too. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Beckett. You are not left out either. <laughs> uh, what was I talking about? Joseph something. Right, okay. So they oppressed uh, the Hebrews by making them slaves, and they oppressed the Hebrews by killing their children. So if you had a male baby, they decided that as soon as you came out of the womb, they told the Egyptian midwives, when you deliver that baby, you check. Because remember, they don't know if it's male or female ahead of time. That's a modern thing. If it's a male when it comes out, you kill them. If it's not, then you let them live. So we see this drastic oppression of this abortion at birth. If it's a male, get rid of it. He doesn't want any extra... uh, reason to be nervous that the Hebrews are going to overthrow him. And culturally, that was one of the things that made him nervous. So God had to step in and save his people. The Hebrews were his people. And here they are being oppressed by the Egyptians. And God sees every inch of it. And maybe the Hebrews are thinking that he doesn't because they've been going for a while and they haven't seen God come and save them yet. But God's got his eye out and he sees that they're being oppressed And so first, we see God save one particular Hebrew boy who was supposed to be killed at birth, but they managed to uh, hide him for long enough. And his name was Moses. So God steps in as a savior and saves Moses. Moses is put in a basket and floated down a river. Now, this is interesting, just so you know, uh, part of the way you can see God saving Moses through this basket. The Hebrew word for that basket is teba. This word's really only used in one other story. And in that particular story in Hebrew, the word teba is translated ark. So you see Moses going down a river in his own little mini ark, right? And just in the same way that God saved Noah by putting him in a teba, so we see Moses being saved by him being put in his own teba. So Moses is saved, and now God tells him that he's got a plan for him. And God tells him straight to his face, very specifically, part of the purpose of which he's bringing Moses up as a kind of saving figure that God wants to save Israel through him. It says this, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. This is what God's saying. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here we see God saying, look, they may not think that I'm paying attention, but I've seen how they've been turned into slaves. And I see how Pharaoh is killing the babies. And you know that drives God nuts. And this is not the only time that we see this story in the Bible, because if we fast forward, sorry, my mic's having problems. If we fast forward, we get to Matthew 2, 16 through 18. And this brings us to the Christmas story where we see the, the cycle repeat itself. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here we have the story repeat itself. A politician, a leader, feels threatened by God's people, 
because he finds out that one of them is going to rise up and be a king. And that makes him nervous that he's going to lose his kingship. And Pharaoh was famous for being a not very lovable guy. Okay? So, of course, he makes probably the least lovable decision he's ever made. The wise men had actually seen the star sometime within the last two years, it seems. And so they tell him, yeah, uh, we came after we saw the star. And it's almost as though they're looking for a two-year-old kid. So... Just to be safe, Herod makes this incredible evil decree, just like Pharaoh or the ruler of Egypt did so long ago, in which he decides to have all babies, this time not just coming right out of the womb, but two years old or younger, killed. Walking, talking children who have names. Those of you who have children, you can think of your children at two years old. And imagine the suffering that you as a family would have to go through. This, of course, Herod's decision to do this is what we talked about yesterday. It caused Jesus to become a refugee. But we also see the story of abortion being told throughout the Bible. We act like it's a new topic because we have different scientific ways of dealing with it. But it's really quite old. They may not have always been able to get a baby at the womb, but abortion in the Old Testament took on the phase of as soon as that child comes out, kill it if we don't want it. And as we move into the New Testament, we see it at play again. If we ever need to get rid of children, we'll just do this mass sweep. And as Christians, we should see the spiritual background behind this. This is inhuman. We, we don't just kind of come to these kind of conclusions on our own. You can see a very satanic and demonic message at play. Demons whispering in the ears of these politicians. Be afraid. Have anxiety. You need to do something radical if you want to keep your reign. And they cave. And they do the unbelievable. They kill children. And we can see the uh, way that Satan works in this. The Bible paints this picture that all the way from Genesis, Satan has been out to mess up humanity, right? All the way to the end. In fact, Revelation talks about how after Jesus ascended, Satan was this dragon, is the picture that Revelation paints. And the dragon was just so angry that he just went on to persecute all of all of the spiritual descendants of Jesus. So all of his followers, Jesus is, or Jesus, Satan is angry. And as this dragon, he's running around trying to persecute Christians. He's out to get us. Kind of as a way to insult God, to insult the image of God. Because that is what you're made in. Furthermore, you can see the way in which Satan has had his grip in abortion. Just by looking at the uh, Greek word for, uh, well, sorcery. It gets translated as sorcery or witchcraft. But the Greek word for this... Is pharmakia. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Pharmacy, pharmaceuticals. It's the same kind of root word. So sorcery in the Greek language was this pharmakia. And actually, uh, as people have done research, they found that sorcerers in Greek times would often use sorcery to especially give people abortions. So you take your pharmaceuticals, your drugs as a sorcerer. And you kind of pump it into these people who didn't want to have their children. And it would make the human body such an unhabitable place for a child to be born that 
it would uh, end with abortion. So we see that the conversation has been at play for a long, long time. And when you see that uh, abortion through pharmacia has its roots literally in sorcery, which has always been attributed to the devil, you see at play again the suffering of Christmas time. You've got refugees, you've got children dying, you've got a lot of suffering. And we love to look at the pictures that we see of Christmas in which Jesus is in this manger, right? He's in like a, a, a feeding trough. <laughs> and he's glowing for some reason, right? And uh, Mary's just so happy and, and holding him rather than in intense pain, unable to stand up from what's just happened. Just everything in these pictures is perfect and wonderful. But when we stop and we look at the story, we see that Christmas comes with a, a, quite a bit of suffering. Mary carried Jesus with joy. She carried having this miracle baby from the Holy Spirit with joy. But she was certainly persecuted sociologically. She probably stopped telling people that the Holy Spirit gave her a baby, right? <laughs> you would, after enough people had laughed in your face. So she suffered through those insults. You see Joseph probably suffering a little bit psychologically. This kid's his kid, but not his kid, but is his kid, but isn't, but it's God. You, know? you see the, the suffering there. You see the anxiety of the wise men. They thought they were doing a good thing, telling uh, the world about the king of the Jews. And then they look behind them as they're leaving and they see all the damage that has happened. You see the abortion of countless walking and talking children in the Christmas story. You see the refugee life of Jesus as he has to flee to Egypt to survive. Because if he stays where he belongs, he dies. And perhaps with that kind of Christmas story, some of you can relate. We don't always have uh, great stories about Christmas. Some of you might come today with a bit of tragedy. Maybe you lost somebody around Christmas or maybe you lost somebody that always came to Christmas and now they're never there. Maybe your parents can't be around at Christmas when you're growing up because they had to work to put food on the table. Maybe the presents did not flow in your house like they did in other places. Maybe the TV was your best friend to get through the day. The truth is there's a lot of people around Christmas time with suffering stories. And they may feel when they look at uh, all the joy and the holiday flair that they could never relate with this Jesus figure. But that's the beauty of the Christmas story. God comes and he suffers with us. And that right there, that, that is amazing to me. You know, Jesus said later, like, okay, so I can take the cross or I can call down legions of angels from heaven and flood this place. <laughs> So, like, from the very beginning, God could have taken on a very authoritative, powerful way of, of fixing the world. But instead, he took on the form of a squishy human baby. And therefore took on all the things that come with being human. Having to flee from persecution. Having to not get yourself killed by angry people. This is the Christmas story. It's not just a God who is for us. It's not just a God who is with us. It's not even just a God who sees our suffering, which is maybe what the Hebrews thought when they were going through the same thing. It's not just a God who sees your suffering. It is a God who partook in the same suffering himself. That's why the Bible says that 
you can relate with Jesus. As crazy as that sounds, Jesus was tempted in every way. He knows what you've gone through. He sees it all. And when we think that God's not paying attention and we feel like our prayers aren't being answered, we can look at this story and see a Jesus who maybe Mary and Joseph felt the same way. God, you gave us this miracle baby. And are you paying attention? We're refugees now. But it shows us a God who is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it shows us a God who's not just with us, but suffers with us. And so with that being said today, I extend to you an invitation to supper. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> well, that's the story from then on out. Jesus starts his story as a refugee, and he ends his story bloody on a cross. And he tells his disciples, hey, you're all going to get fancy cars and nice houses if you follow me. No, he didn't. You were too slow to correct me, you guys. <laughs> what he said was, hey, people are going to hate you and probably try to kill you, so follow me. And go sell all your stuff and uh, give it to the poor. And love those around you and clothe the naked and feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty and put clothes on the naked. I said that already. It just keeps going back to the naked. I don't <laughs> But we see a strong message preached for Christians to make this life not just a religion. Jesus didn't come to establish a new religion. He came to establish the kingdom of heaven, where he is king, where he doesn't just tell people, you got to follow me and you're going to suffer, but my life's good. No, he demonstrated to us from beginning to end, you got to follow me and you're going to suffer like I suffered. So uh, here's what we're going to do. Jesus entered into the darkness with light, and today we light the final Advent candle, it's the, the Christ candle, and we're going to sing two songs so the band can come to the stage. We've got a bunch of candles here, so, so long as you don't think the kids are going to burn the place down, um, feel free, we're going to sing two songs, the first song is going to give you enough time to come and take a candle, stick it in the cup, and then I want you to light it on the Christ candle, so that you understand as you go back to your tables, this is symbolic of you taking the light of Christ with you, taking the light of Christ into the world. One of my favorite quotes from uh, one of my favorite scholars, he talks about how maybe from God's point of view, as he looks down at the earth, it's just dark, but then there's these little specks of light all across it, and those lights are Christians who are following after Jesus and doing as he wishes. So take that symbolism with you this Christmas, recognizing we worship a God who suffers with us, not a God who came and just had complete victory. If anything, the victory Jesus did have only came through suffering. So uh, when you are ready, I feel like I'm setting up communion here. Don't eat or drink this, please. Uh, <laughs> when you're ready, take the candle, stick it in the cup, light it on the Christ candle. Uh, we're going to sing Silent Night. And then after that, we sing Joy to the World. On the third verse of Joy to the World, we lift our candles without pouring wax on each other, and we celebrate uh, the Christmas story. So let me pray for you as Janae plays some pretty music. On command. Jesus, we... Uh, 
can get caught up in the holiday hubbub sometimes. And forget what it's all about. Really, a lot of the suffering has been stripped out of Christmas because it's all about getting nice new gifts and loving on our, our family and our friends, going in debt for one another. <laughs> and sometimes we just forget what it's all about. Clearly, it's all about you, but even when we get stuck on that, sometimes our American mentality likes to retell the story that it's all about a victorious life when the truth is it's the Christian life comes with a pretty good share of suffering if we're truly living it out. And so we just pray uh, for the strength to suffer well knowing we have a God who is not just God with us, but a God who suffers along. In Jesus' name, amen.